Hi everybody, this is Michael Collo from Crypto Cappuccino. Today I'm super, super duper excited to have Matt Dixon, Professor Matt Dixon, Quant of the Year 2022 on the podcast to talk all about blockchains, cybersecurity, and maybe even surfing. So I hope you can join us. Hi everybody, this is Mike Collo with Crypto Cappuccino. It is my greatest of privileges to welcome Matt Dixon to the podcast today. Hi Matt. Hi Michael, how are you? Matt is a phenomenal mind. And in fact, if you didn't even know that, he is the quant of the year 2022, which is a fantastic honor and achievement. I didn't realize they had a quant of the year, quant of the decade, perhaps a century. But uh, for, for some of his work, that's been very well recognized. And I would really encourage you to um, look it up and, and have a look at it on uh, the internet. I think Risk Magazine and a few others promoted it really, really well. Um, but before we kind of jump into to your accolades and your background and, and where you've come from, um, we were just talking about surfing um, be, be, before we, we joined. So you're you're an avid surfer, Matt. Yes, I am. It's um, what I would love to be doing if you know if I'm not spending my time coding or solving math problems. It's just a great way to you know just disconnect the mind, turn off, and and soak up uh, you know the sort of the natural world, which is in many ways the antithesis of this metaverse that we're building. It it, 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 it does fascinate me. I've. Um, I'm not a surfer, but I do like a nice quiet fish on, on a kind of sun, sunset. We were just talking about how Australia has some amazing beaches for this as well and the active lifestyle that's outside and how to find that kind of balance from that kind of serenity, but also the kind of really cool elements of what we're going to talk about today, which is a bit more on the data and, and the abstract side. But I, I do find it fascinating that a lot of people with statistics and mathematics background do have a very active, whether they're cycling or surfing, that there's a sense of that there's an affinity to nature and being outside, which is really cool. Um, and that takes us really nice and neatly actually to the next question I have for you, which is um, tell me a little bit about your background, how you've come to be here in this moment in time, how you began your career and the path you took. Yeah, so I, I had a pretty strange um, sort of background by, by most standards. Uh, I actually started out as a civil engineer. So I have my civil engineering degree from um, Imperial College in London. I love math and I wanted to build things. Um, this is sort of before the web. You know, everyone said, why don't you become a civil engineer? That's sort of, you know, get to build things, get to see the impact of your work. Uh, but when I got into it, I just sort of found it very hand-wavy on the math. Lots of things bothered me. I got into sort of long protracted arguments with professors about things called fudge factors uh, that are used to design bridges. And I just felt very, um, very sort of cheated by the whole thing. And so I decided to go back, do a master's degree in scientific computing. I ended up working for the British Defense in the area of war games, designing war games, uh, software engineering. Uh, and then I decided at that point, I'd go into trading. Um, and uh, I just like the thrill and the spills of it. And I had sort of enough software experience to get onto the trade floor. And that's really where it all began. At Lehman Brothers, um, I got to see uh, just how very interesting the whole world of finance is uh, and how fast moving it is. And that's ultimately what sort of took me on a journey to being a math finance professor and uh, being in the space of sort of, I'd say, fintech more broadly. So you were in the trading floor of Lehman's. Is that right before the crash or, after, or, or during or...? Yeah, that was before. I mean, it was to sort of really. I was there in the really in, in its it, the peak of its you know uh, time during the period where there was just 
you know, unabounded hubris in, you know, credit derivatives. I was working right in that area of CDSs, CDOs, uh, you know, designing a lot of the models, building them out, scaling them, um, but always with the engineering focus um, because to me that's sort of where um, I added value the most. Um, and it's funny because that's kind of in a way what blockchain is about, you know, I mean, it's 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 a lot of engineering. Um, it's it's some knowledge of quant finance and math, uh, and you really can't just be a one-trick pony. You know, you've got to know lots of different things uh, in order to be able to get something out of it. So, so yeah, Lehman Lehman was the start of it all, and you know, and it was the end of end of an era as well. It it, it feels like you know history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. You know that saying, and it's it's fascinating to me now that I've I've been in the game for a bit longer and as you view we've kind of seen cycles come and go that beginning of, of a technologically led cycle where you know the initial rock stars of that cycle are the engineers are the math professors i mean i remember coming into quant um somewhat after you but it, it was it was still the the echoes of the great minds mathematicians physics and the physics professors etc echoed in the hallways and there was a sense that you know that the, those quant guys are like you know really smart people on, on the whiteboard and they're just kind of magic money up um and of course over time some of these promises did come true and a lot of the stuff that has been built into the structure actually has absolutely come from those minds but I'll, but where there has been failings i suppose or meltdowns or whatever even if they were statistically you know within within parameters feels like there, there's been a very wide-scale disappointment in in oh my gosh, I thought you guys solved that problem, and why, why are we still having this crisis? I, I, let me jump straight into that. I mean, do you think that blockchain? In, in what elements do you think blockchain and, and the current moving in blockchain is similar? Given that we just had a stable coin that's really melted down, for example, where it feels like maybe one one conversation that's been had is well, you know, that stable coin was supposed to be stable because of the engineering work that had been done in the background, and lo, lo and behold, it isn't. So there's a there's a bit of a sense of loss of of confidence. Do you, do you see that as being, I suppose, in any way related, parallel to to, to this idea, or or quite distinct? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's you know obviously there are some differences, but I think the main one is that uh, you know no one if if you ask anyone sort of on the surface, do you understand how these stable coins work? You know, you might you'll get a different answer from everybody. Um, and there is no, there are no standards. Uh, there is no sort of systemized set of stress testers, a stress test, for example. Um, and so everyone is sort of making it up as they go along. And that's sort of how it felt with credit derivatives, really. Um, you know, everyone sort of had their own way of approaching it. You know, copulas became the way to roll with the credit derivatives. Those were, you know, based on flawed assumptions, we now know. But as usual, um, I think it's just a, a, a familiar pattern in human history. We tend to choose our favorites and we tend to trust those. And if they're saying it's okay, um, you know, and they've got sufficient credentials, then, then I think we just sort of tend to push forward. And anyone who does have any uh, sort of sound reasoning and critique tends to, to have their voice ground out because everyone's making money. Um, and actually, that's sort of what I found when I sort of went into this a couple of years ago. Um, I just looked with horror at the whole thing. Um, and I read Alex Lipton's book, you know, when it came out, I looked through a lot of the stablecoin white papers. Some are better than the others. Die, very good papers. Solo, very good white papers. Solid, 
math behind it. And I just looked a whole lot of them and it just seemed like sort of Mickey Mouse drawings and uh, just opening more more questions than it raised. And just, I think the frustrating thing being this whole mantra of decentralization being uh, overshadowing any scientific reasoning from a mathematics point of view. In other words, if you get the decentralization, all will be solved as the magic bullet without thinking about the economic principles. And in some sense, it was like that with sort of the credit derivatives. You package everything up, the market will take care of uh, you know, some of this credit default risk. And uh, the fact that we have junk bonds underneath it, not a problem. You know, it's, the models have effectively you know, accounted for that, um, except that they didn't. Uh, and there were also a number of conflicts of interest. The rating agencies, for example, were in bed with the banks. Um, and slowly we start to see a system unfold. And it just reminds me of the book written by, you know, by Nassim Taleb on fragility, that once you know, one domino falls, another one falls, and another one falls. And it just exposes basically a house of cards. And I think um, we're yet to see the full repercussions of what just happened with, with Terra. Um, and uh, I think it's just an, a necessary part of the evolution. And hopefully uh, we come out of this with, with better standards and more, more rigor. Uh, as we did with the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, I, 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 absolutely right. And I think that's, that, that is one of the fascinating parts for me is as these different sciences collide or the different scientific viewpoints collide, what happens? Because as you say, the engineer solves problems in absolute, whereas the statistician is constantly in that gray. You know, something is probabilistically right. And that, that, that itself is, of course, an abstraction of, of the complexity of those two, two, two spheres. But... I do feel like um, the DNA of the original founders of a particular movement or science often determines its reach, its strengths, but also its weaknesses or the things that it kind of misses. And I think maybe this is where, like, for example, if you talk about cognitive finance and, and the cognitive field of financial asset pricing, you, you have a very different ethos of, of knowability and, and what's knowable and, and how that system functions. And if you talk to the scientific community, but I therefore kind of, also wonder whether with, with blockchain, the primary problem that's being solved is a financial one or whether the final prim primarily problem that's being solved is almost a um, social um, mistrust or unrest or whatever. There was a wonderful paper that was released, I think, at the beginning of the year about the state of crypto. Well, we often see these kind of papers, but this was, a, I think, a 120-page one. And, and it was about uh, crypto adoption and it was kind of making lots of forecasts and whatever. But the number one thing it talked about the beginning was still the number one driver of this area is that resistance to that centralized force, that centralized controlling force of them and us, the government, the bank, whoever else it is. And yeah. so, as you say, decentralization solves that problem. But I think from a network perspective, does it introduce all kinds of other issues? And I, I, I want to pick up a little bit about your, perhaps this is related to the point, perhaps not, is... Um, your paper in 2018, um, the one that we we're just chatting about now, just before we came on the, the podcast. So tell me a bit about that, because I, I, I found that really interesting. Yeah, I think I think um, it's it's a paper which uh, tried to, uh, I mean, so the backstory in that paper is that when we wrote it, we felt that uh, all the studies that will be done sort of in the crypto space and finance were really just very superficial attempts to use crypto data. 
Um, in other words, it was just the same old, you know, run your predictive model on some time series and, and off you go. And, um, you know, there were some attempts to try and, um, you know, do some sort of fundamental modeling with models to supply, uh, you know, network effects and so on. But overall, very unsatisfying, given you've got all this data which has been generated by the blockchain graph, all this transactional data. And so I think what, what we try to do is say, well, can you study the properties of the graph and identify early warning signals for Bitcoin crashes? And so we were looking exclusively at Bitcoin. And what we set out to do was to um, create a methodology for developing what we call chainlets, which are certain types of graph patterns that occur um, with, uh, when there's systemic movement or systemic effects, either systemic selling off of Bitcoin or um, changes in the way that transactions are dispersed. So maybe one transaction gets split to three wallets on average instead of two. Uh, this, the size of the amounts of funding going into wallets across the graph. And so we looked at all of these factors and then we said, okay, if you now incorporate this with a predictive model as, you know, as, as now as exogenous factors into some sort of time series model, could you, could you increase the predictive power of the model or the ability to at least um, capture the tail risk? And we found that, that you could do that with about 20 minute lead times, because that's the time taken for the, uh, the blocks to, to finalize in, in, uh, in the version uh, of Bitcoin that you know, we were looking at. And I think this is very interesting because it starts to open up a whole new area of mathematics in finance. You know, before it was always stochastics, it was always about uh, your machine learning maybe. Well, all of a sudden graph theory becomes very interesting. And it's not just, you know, looking at networks of banks and graph, you know, graph patterns in the graph there to look at systemic risk. You now have very, very granular data. Um, and the challenge now becomes a big data problem of interacting with the graph, collecting that data, running algorithms over it. Um, and ultimately, that's what big data in finance was always about. And here you have a problem which naturally sort of fitted that sort of, uh, you know, technology sort of, um, sort of, you know, ideology. And you also have really very interesting new areas of mathematics to bring into the field. Um, and I think that's how things advance is when all of a sudden you bring a new area into the picture that, that previously had, had no place, I mean, in, in finance. Absolutely. And I think finance has been exceptional actually at, at some, well, exceptionally, it's been pretty good, I think, at um, germinating these different sciences into it with, with mixed success, I'd say. I think there's, there's a big graveyard of uh, sciences that have come along to try to forecast prices uh, that, that haven't quite worked out. But just going back to this kind of thing. So I think, am, am I understanding correctly that when we talk about big data in this context and we talk about the, the we, we, I think we talk about the activity of wallets, is that right? Or, or, or groups of wallets right. that are potentially owned by an individual or, or kind of correlated in trading. So essentially, is what we're observing is microstructure of traders, people going to the market, buying and selling a particular, in this case, Bitcoin. And then I suppose the interesting question for me becomes, if I think about all the microstructure literature and we think about informed and uninformed traders, is that still a useful framework? Or are we now trying to understand 
Um, so are we looking for categories of traders within that data or are we looking at the the actions of the swarm in some sense, like the collective actions of a large number of agents and trying to characterize it as a system in, in, in some way? Yeah, I think it, I think it's it's sort of both. I mean, here's, here's a good example where uh, I think it really it really hit home how useful this idea is. So about um, just over a year ago, there was a Bitcoin crash uh, and it was supposedly related to a district in China um, having a, a power outage. Um, you know, I think it was a maintenance for, for maintenance rather than, than uh, unplanned. And it just so happened to affect the region where a lot of the cryptocurrency miners are based, some of the largest crypto farms. You know, this is sort of obviously on the, on the tail end of that you know, movement away from China of, of these Bitcoin farms. But it, but it suddenly becomes very interesting because it made me start to think, well, if a Bitcoin miner has informed knowledge, let's say that it knows something about uh, the transaction hash rate ahead of um, everyone else, can it trade or can it effectively sell off large amounts of its Bitcoin um, and then you know, collectively as a group conspire to reduce the hash rates. So there's a strong correlation between hash rates and Bitcoin price. Um, and so if a network of Bitcoin miners associated with one of these farms all decided to slow down the transaction, the, the transaction hash rates, you could effectively just sell your Bitcoin as a miner, slow down the transaction hashes and then cash in, um, uh, you know, essentially, you know, you're, you're taking a short on this whole this whole um, position, and I think it's very interesting because you can actually show using these techniques I described if there are informed traders uh, which are essentially conspiring to uh, to to act in a way that could could show that they were informed and they were premeditating um, or even causing some kind of drop in the Bitcoin. So. What we did is we ran some graph algorithms. Uh, we looked at various different clustering approaches on the graph, and we were able to identify certain clusters of miners that, um, and we knew we knew they were miners because they had uh, transactions associated with uh, with particular addresses, which we knew to be um, uh, mining mining farms. And then we can look at their own wallets and who they send their Bitcoin to, uh, and see what the balance is. And then look at the timing and essentially say, well, let's give them five minute uh, lead times. Let's see if they sell off within a five minute window of some large price drop. Look at all the one standard deviation uh, events for price drops. Are they consistently selling um, irregular, you know, larger amounts than when the Bitcoin is not decreasing? And can we, can we, you know, can we ultimately sort of prove this statistically using the the graph data and the clustering. So we use the graph data to collect all the transaction information, the graph queries, but then use clustering on the graph using uh, graph-based clustering algorithms. And then once we found that cluster, we are then using you know, statistical techniques to look at the distribution of their payments conditioned on you know, when there's a Bitcoin price drop ahead of time and seeing if those distributions are statistically different. And that leads us to sort of identifying essentially those that could be conspiring um, at, you know that's not a full proof but it just it, it could be very useful for for example the FBI um, who are looking to you know enforce um, uh, various different 
um, <clears throat> you know, prevent essentially the, this sort of thing from happening. So I think it's very, it just opens up a whole new realm um, of thinking about data um, on the blockchain. And it's really its own kind of discipline. And, you know, it's different from any other area of data science that, that, uh, that we typically have, you know, different from image recognition. It's different from looking at, uh, you know, problems in, in finance. It, it has its own sort of unique flavor. And uh, I just think it's a very interesting area to just ask, well, what, what can you do with the graph when you combine it with other techniques in, uh, in, in data science? Yeah, no, it, it's the, the, I think the transparency and the data availability that makes this available is amazing. I, I was kind of smiling to myself as you were speaking because it kind of reminded me of, um, was it, was it, okay, I don't want to blame people who weren't at fault, but was it Enron or someone else who, remember how they used to call up the electricity providers, like a really, really hot day, and they'd call up a power station and say, I think you should go into maintenance mode or something. And that was essentially shut that power station off and power prices would spike and they would make money. So that was the kind of, classic manipulation and, and just the way that you describe this reminded me a little bit of that in the sense that you're manipulating the way that a system functions in order to create a price outcome. So I, I mean, you couldn't do this, but if you, I don't know, went to NYSC and, and got them to run maintenance at a particular moment in during the trading day, and that would, I don't know, bring down the aggregate CPU speed or the aggregate memory available for facilitating trade. And that would have a discernible uh, impact on prices in a directional way, I think you would be kind of in a similar position to to understand that actually, as you say, the functioning of the blockchains in terms of their their structure and how they function, if that has something to do with the way that assets are priced, in this case, the price of Bitcoin, um, then yeah. I, I also wonder whether this is still, I suppose, as we evolve the blockchains and we start to create augmented um, components to them, um, whether some of those components are going to become much more dynamic. Um, I mean, at the moment, it feels to me, maybe I'll run a thought past you and you can tell me if I'm, uh, if, if I'm completely off, off mark, but I suppose the, one of the lessons speaking of the GFC and, and Lehman's and so on for me was I was sitting in BlackRock watching the world meltdown in front of me. And one of the things as a young PhD graduate that I was uh, being told at the time is that part of the problem was that the legal frameworks that govern many of the funds, for example, money market funds, when you break the box or you kind of drop below a particular critical threshold, you have to liquidate. And essentially that forced liquidation because of the rigidity of the contracts behind them is part of the reason that, that a lot of the selling was amassed and the liquidity got worse and worse and worse. Had these agents had any discretion to be able to sell or sell conditionally on liquidity or risk or anything like that, they would have been able to do this in a much more considered way and probably much better outcomes. When I look at this infrastructure today and I see, for example, smart contracts that are moving money around a system, and these smart contracts are written to be quite transparent, but equally very linear and very transactional in nature, I then sort of reminisce and wonder whether we're in introducing some of this fragility with that, with the structure of these smart contracts. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts over that that has kind of come to your mind at all. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, um, and and it's sort of interesting because you know Ethereum is probably one of the most advanced, mature blockchains, you know, and it has some of the most sophisticated attack vectors. Um, compared to some of the other blockchains. And, you know, I think there's never, um, 
there's never a shortage of just brilliant people who can ultimately always exploit some um, some aspect of it. And so I think one of the challenges you face if you are, you know, say, for example, a quant in this area is you almost have to wear the hat of, uh, you know, a cybersecurity expert. You have to wear the hat of an operational risk, um, you know, expert. You can't just sit in your, you know, your cyber crypto bubble and, and just sort of hope that because you know how to program on the blockchain and you follow Twitter and Discord channels and whatever else, you're, you know, you're up to speed with all the crypto know-how. There's a, a really a lot of, there's a very high degree of sophistication in, in the sort of attacks that we're seeing. Um, and I just think that it's just part of the parcel. I, I don't think it's ever going to be a case where any blockchain itself is completely and utterly impermeable, except if someone can develop something like uh, a truly, I mean, I think, you know, Cardano might, might be along the lines here, but a formal verification type blockchain system where it's mathematically provable that it cannot be in any way, you know, attacked. And I think that some people are working on these sort of setups where um, rather than relying on these kind of ad hoc um, sort of audits, which again, just reminds me of credit rating agencies and banks. They're all in bed with each other, really. If you pay audit companies enough money, they'll just say yes. And the problem is it's very ad hoc. No one is really looking at the possible cybersecurity attacks. Um, and, and, and so we're getting all these stable coins and cryptocurrencies passing all these audits. I mean, how did Terra get its audit passed? You know, it, it's, and, and so, you know, not only should we be looking at Terra, but who audited Terra? And they should also, you know, be ranked on the, the blacklist of companies that you would never trust again to audit your crypto. And I think, you know, we should be very um, hard about these uh, sort of very, very disciplined and aggressive on these sort of issues because ultimately, the only way that we can really crack down on um, a lot of these sort of flaws and cybersecurity holes is, is to essentially improve the ability of auditing. And the another challenge, I think, is that the more you have these blockchains, the more there are tendencies to want to bridge across them, have multiple you know, blockchain solutions. You've then got wormholes, you've then got cybersecurity vulnerabilities, you know, Solana had this just in February with a 323 million hack on one in this wormhole. It's very, very complex. And I think with more complexity comes more greater possibility of, um, of a cybersecurity risk. I don't know that uh, we're going in the right direction, uh, to be honest. I think somebody needs to come along and simplify things and, uh, and I think move towards more of a formal verification type of blockchain um, and avoid all this sort of reliance on ad hoc audits and just unbelievable amount of, um, you know, just patchwork of different sort of um, blockchain L L2 and bridge type solutions, which are just in the end, um, just making it very easy for, for hackers to exploit. And I think, I think that's a, a really good point, which is, these systems and, and and essentially what they're really good at, but what they're maybe not so good at. So 
one of the elements I think certainly is around data validation. As I suppose a different way to think about that is, does that necessitate a, well, for example, well-functioning price discovery? Does that facilitate a well-functioning ecology ecosystem? For me, the takeaway from the recent stablecoin uh, issues was more about cross-collateral, how you can kind of create links or systematic risk. And, and let's for, for a moment say that these, or let's say even well-defined blockchains that there isn't a major problem with. The issue becomes when you've got these cross-collaterals is that they co-move or, or that they have codependency in actions. As soon as you have coordinated actions, you have systematic risk across a bunch of you know under underrelated elements, and so all you have to, as we found out from capital markets, all you have to do is have common holdings of securities that have no relationships fundamentally to each other in order for you yep. to get common movement and therefore common action. So again, yeah. there's a different problem to solve here, which is what does that look like as a financial system or as a, a storage of value or as a storage of any kind of economic utility uh, that, that they have and, and how do they kind of move through time? If I'm going to be a business, I'm going to put my um, shares or my utility or anything else on these blockchains, how are they going to function? In the same way that today, if I'm a business, I'm raising money in the capital markets. And I think it's a laughable assertion to say that prices move with fundamentals in any kind of reasonable horizon, or, or let's say d- dominated by fundamentals. I wouldn't say it's not relevant, but I would say not necessarily dominated by. So it's, it. I again, going back to the previous point about, I find it fascinating that as, as finance professionals, we've had decades of dealing with these problems and questions. As, as blockchain engineers, this conversation is only really beginning because somehow the technology of blockchain has been wrapped together with this idea of a currency or a coin or an asset, a tradable, liquid, and and uh, real-time asset. I mean, can we imagine a case where blockchain came to market kind of like with AI without a specific, you know, product or some, something that was traded? Like, I, I feel like there's because the technology came together, Bitcoin was both a blockchain and a, and a storage of value together, but they're quite different conversations in terms of what we're talking about. And we are kind of obviously moving between the topics because we're comfortable. But I think for those people listening, in my mind, certainly I tend to separate maybe correctly or incorrectly the technology of blockchain, which is distributed information management and storage and retrieval to a um, kind of a, a what, what shall we call it, alternative market for, for a trading of real-time assets through this technology that starts to look a lot like capital markets and small cap capital markets with systematic risk and crashes and booms and busts and whatever. But essentially is, is not really, I mean, it's facilitated by the blockchain, but it's not really related in many other ways to the blockchain. Yeah, I think, um, I think overall, um, the, what makes, I think it's, I mean, this is a great time to, if you're in data science or machine learning and you know, you're sort of interested in this area, um, rather than sort of running a quick get rich kind of scheme to actually come up with sort of measures of systemic risk in the blockchain system across change, across stable coins, looking at the collateral. And I know that you know, there have been some studies looking at um, correlation across the different crypto assets, obviously they're all very correlated. But I, I haven't seen anyone yet study uh, the extent to which the collateral in the stable coins um, is systemically, uh, you know, it, it, the degree of systemic risk, and ultimately, I think someone needs to come up with a health, you know, a, a health score one to five, you know, in the same way that we have the DEFCON in the United States, you know, uh, what's what's the threat level, 
in terms of the amount of uh, cross exposure and ultimately, uh, you know, these things need to be built. And for some reason, um, no one seems to be sort of very incentivized to do it. Uh, but perhaps that's the new wave of, of innovation is dealing with, uh, you know, better risk management because, you know, people I think will start to appreciate Sharpe's ratio a bit more. Uh, uh, you know, you need to, you need to control the vol as well as the, uh, as well as increase the returns. It can't just be default yields. You've got to think about the, the vol as well. I mean, I, I guess my sense is that, as the market, the investment market matures in the space, and we are seeing a lot more adoption in wholesale institutional markets, and people start to create product off the back of it, which involves, for example, putting together staking or or a yield portfolio, you can't, you can no longer go into that conversation saying there's no capital risk. You just park your stable coins and get whatever nineteen percent, fifteen percent rate of return. You have to talk about counterparty risk, and it's a very uncomfortable conversation because there is no um, recourse. So it's not like you kind of <laughs> let the money, it's, it's an algorithm and certain things are melted down and that's just it. But that goes back to your auditability and certification elements of this, I think, question, which is, I feel like anybody, as you say, that audits has to have some amount of legal or financial liability associated with that audit. And I suppose and ultimately financial liability, which is what it all comes down to. So as you say, if yeah. an agency audits a blockchain and they have $50 million worth of that coin, so if they lose, if the blockchain goes down, that, that coin goes to zero as an example case, or $10 or whatever, then there's a very direct traceable financial obligations they have to make sure they get it right so that they understand at least the risks and so on. But as you say, if it's just a, a sticker or a uh, stamp that they put on, then the, the incentive structure is very different, especially today's market where, I don't know, let's say $200 billion worth of blockchain companies be minted over like the top 30 companies, I think are about $200 billion in value over the last couple of years. So that, as you say, the amount of capital, enthusiasm, and, and desire for this to work is, is quite overwhelming in markets, right? Yeah, no, that's a great point, um, you know, about having, um, you know, skin in the game. And uh, I'd be very interested to see how regulators uh you know paid in on this i know that it's the dirty word in the crypto world um you know it, as soon as you mention anything about this it, it sort of you know it, you know it, it it sort of sends uh you know the, the decentralization uh tin hat wearing purists uh into you know a, a sort of a spiral of, of anger and i you know i've spent a lot of time trying to sort of reason about regulation um, in this area and why ultimately uh, no blockchain can be void of regulation uh, simply for the reason that we are seeing now um, in, and I don't think that decentralization is the only answer to uh, the problems that are currently happening in the blockchain. It's just a lot more complicated than that. Um, and ultimately I think uh, it's going to be exciting time for people in, you know, who are in academia and, and people who like to invent new frameworks and systems of accountability. I think it's just a wide open territory for coming up with great market design. Um, and, uh, you know, to be different to the way we've designed the previous financial markets, but I think someone should actually sit down and think carefully about what would be the right market design, the role of regulators, the role of uh, auditors, 
the incentive mechanisms, uh, risk management frameworks, it's all up on the table. I think it's, from that perspective, what a, what a great intellectual exercise, you know, for a rainy day. Which we happen to have one here in Sydney right now. So that's all right, there you go. There you go. So, there you go. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Great suggestion for this afternoon. So um, maybe my <laughs> final question to you, uh, Matt, which is just to, to, to take you out on a high note is, in this area, what are you most excited about? What's an area that you kind of gives you goosebumps and you go, yeah, you know what? That's either going to be big or that's going to be big for me. Like I'm, I'm just super excited about getting my hands around that problem. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that um, because despite all my sort of mathematical sort of um, sort of motivations and, and love of all things kind of geeky, ultimately it's about impact. And I really see that uh, you could have a very different kind of financial system with blockchain, you know, where citadels and, and the like are incentivized to work in a way that they get some profit, but they also subsidize global remittance and transaction costs. In other words, you could just, with financial engineering, bring all sorts of things which are previously fragmented and disconnected and proprietary and bring them all together. Uh, in ways that make a lot more sense as a synergist, excuse me, as a synergistic exercise in, uh, you know, market design. And I think ultimately it will just lower the costs for people and make it possible to get money moved around um, in a much easier way. And I think everyone should have access to capital. Um, they shouldn't, you know, there's 1.7 billion people who are unbanked in this world. Uh, that's got to be a nightmare um, trying to get navigate this world. So I think ultimately it's the social impact and the ability for you know those who don't have a bank account um, but have a phone to be able to you know be a part of the digital economy. That is a brilliant idea, and I think that that's um, we we forget often that there are eight billion people on this planet, and then when we have these conversations, we're invariably in echo chambers of our own countries, usually in the developed markets. For example, and as you say, there's so much sea of humanity out there that can benefit. Um, I think I share your enthusiasm. I think I share your desire for social structure, social change. I worry a little bit about, and this is a bigger conversation again, maybe not for today, but um, I worry a little bit about how when you put uranium into a system, what comes out? Is it, a, is it a power plant or is it a bomb? And I think in a similar kind of way, do we see this technology being um, weaponized or moved into the capitalist structures that we have today? Um, one of the things I was generally surprised at is Bitcoin can, has come this far. I'm, I'm positively surprised, but I am surprised because there was a part of me that yeah. was thinking, gee whiz, this is... A lot of countries would want to shut this down quickly because it's a really big part of the monetary policy and their control over their economies that they would be relinquishing. I mean, that's aside from the black money leaving and moving around or the untraceability of that or the taxation foregone from that. It's more about the, um, the notion that that's no longer in your control for you to, again, print more or to change the interest rates of and so on. And that feels like every every conversation about the economy today with the higher inflation we're seeing and with some of the stagnation fears ends up going back to what is the federal government going to do? What is the federal reserve going to do? What, what is the, you know, what, what is that central agency that we deplore and hate and don't like, and we want to get away from in the world of blockchain, how going to solve, help us and save us. And I feel like it's a really, 
fascinating question, which is, uh, I, I love the technology. I love the ideals that you outlined, which is about accessibility, about equality, about transparency, about removing some of these bad agents and the fragmentation that we've had in system about redesigning away from um, pure capitalism and greed to, to a broader social agenda around the financial system. And I hope that there's enough, not just smart people, but but can can uh, you know people that are convinced about this 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 idea and future and willing to put their careers on hold and their research agendas on hold and so on to to pursue it, to push that through at least in some fraction into the next generation. I think would be a wonderful outcome. Yeah, well, that's that's a really great point about you know uh, uranium and and you know what comes out at the end. I, I think you, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, so, well, I guess we'll, we'll see. And like you said, amazing that we got this far with it, really, um, considering what a grandiose idea it was. I and mean, if nothing else, it just says something about the power of ideas. Um, Satoshi's paper changed everything, um, just one paper. So very interesting um, to, to be uh, sort of in the middle of all this in, in, in some shape or form as a is someone in math and finance, and uh, I think it's 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 just keeping eyes and minds wide open as as this you know technology plays out. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Matt Dixon, Quant of the Year. Thank you, Michael.